Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, uh, my name is Dave. I'm the minister here in this congregation. And uh, once again, I extend my welcome to anybody who's visiting today uh, as we come to God's word. Let's uh, pray uh, and ask for God's guidance. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are the Holy One that will never die. We thank you that you are from everlasting, the rock on which we stand. We thank you that your word does not prove false. And as we come before you today, help our hearts to be open to wrestle with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In late 1893, two sisters, Nellie and Topsy, left their home in Melbourne and arrived in Asia to serve as missionaries. One evening, facing the threat of marauding locals, Nellie bolted the door of the boys' bedroom and stood resolutely before it to protect the children. A chant went up as if it was a sporting match. Kill Nellie Saunders! Kill Nellie Saunders! Two of the attackers viciously speared her and she fell writhing to the floor. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Not long after, her sister Topsy was also brutally speared, along with the women around her. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Fast forward a hundred years this time, in Sarajevo, during the Bosnian War in the, late 90, in the early 1990s, the words written in the diary of a young girl, Satla Falokovic, said this, We saw terrible scenes on TV. The town in ruins, burning. People and children being killed. It's unbelievable. All around, there were cars burning, people dying, and nobody could help them. God, why is this happening? I'm here. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? More recently on our own TV screens, we hear the news of families crowding in the bustling chaos outside Kabul airport in Afghanistan, and they watch in horror as family members are ripped to pieces by the exploding suicide bomber in their midst or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. In our own country, men and women taking their own lives because of the trauma of being violated by so-called respected members of society, people in authority over them, whom they trusted, was too much to bear, as memories from childhood abuse hang heavy around their necks, while perpetrators walk free. How long, Lord? Shall I go on? I haven't even begun to scratch the surface. How long, Lord? What do we do when God doesn't make sense? Is there any clarity in the chaos of confusion? These are questions that weighed heavily on Habakkuk's heart as he wrestled with God in prayer. And in one sense, the book of Habakkuk is a journal of one man wrestling with God in prayer as he tries to come to terms, tries to find some clarity in the chaos and confusion, the harsh and brutal reality of life in an unjust world that, it's turned, that has turned its back on God. 
as we explore these verses of Habakkuk's journal over the next few weeks. Let me begin by explaining the context in which Habakkuk lives by covering a quick timeline of the Old Testament history. A timeline you're all very familiar with. God creates people and says the best way to live is the way I've designed you. The people think that they know better than God and so they reject God's way of living. God gives them what they have chosen and the people quickly discover that God's way of living is better than their own way. Their own way leads to corruption, disharmony, pain and suffering, chaos, confusion. God makes promises to a man called Abraham and God promises, God's promises include a great kingdom of people living in their own land and being blessed by God. God eventually makes the nation strong, made up of 12 tribes and gives them the promised land to live in. And God says, if you trust me, I will keep you living here. I'll let you keep living here. If not, I will make you go and live somewhere else under someone else's rule. What happens? Well, the king's leading them go okay to start with, David and Solomon after Saul, but these kings were not without their problems. Eventually, different kings start leading the people away from God. The kingdom gets split into two parts. One part made up of the ten tribes heads north and gets destroyed by a bigger nation, Assyria. The other two tribes head south and be called Judah. Habakkuk is living among the two tribes left in the south. But what we see is that even these two remaining tribes have rejected God's good design and are trapped in a cycle of violence and suffering. Hence the, his questioning cry at the beginning of the book in verse 2 there. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. How long is a question that focuses on the duration of suffering. And Habakkuk didn't doubt whether God would do something about injustice. For at a very basic level, he knew the suffering was not indefinite. For later on in chapter 3, verse 1, Habakkuk speaks of having heard of God's fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, he says in 3, verse 2. Perhaps that is why Habakkuk is so frustrated. Because unlike what he read about in the account of the Exodus about Moses. God doesn't seem to be saving him now. He goes on in verse 2, I'll cry out to you violence, but you do not save. He feels like there is no end in sight and hence the cry of accusation that God is not listening. Listen! An exasperated cry. You are not listening to me. As we looked earlier in the year, it was also the way that Job felt when he cried out to God. Though I cry, I've been wronged. I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice, were the words of Job. Well, under the constant onslaught of confusion and complexity, the heavy weight of divine silence tempts Habakkuk to feel that God is aloof, distant, and indifferent. Now no one is immune to suffering and we ourselves, if we ourselves kept a prayer journal of our own over our lifetimes there would be pages written that reflect that we too identify with Habakkuk's cries of anguish. And for some of you I acknowledge that those pages of anguish would be numerous indeed. And from the how long question that Habakkuk asks, he moves on 
to an, another anguished question of why. In verse 3, he says, why? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now you may have noticed the word law in verse 4 and this suggests that the perversion of justice that Habakkuk is talking about is coming from his own people. So the law is paralysed, not in the sense that it has some kind of defect, but because the people themselves are not adhering to it. And in so doing, they are paralysing the effects of the law to restrain people from evil. And it's one thing when a criminal is a criminal, but when the law court becomes the criminal, there is no place for us to go to. And for Habakkuk, that's where it has come to, under the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the king of Judah over the last two remaining tribes in the south. Now, according to Habakkuk's contemporary Jeremiah, the, the king Jehoiakim drove his own people into forced labour and even tried to kill Jeremiah himself. He was unsuccessful, but he did kill the prophet Uriah in, in Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 20 to 24. And the people's ancestors were warned about this injustice back in 1 Samuel 8 when they were first asking for a king. But they refused to listen to God and rejected God as their king and appointed a man instead so that they could be just like all the other nations. And when a culture turns its back on God, on God's good design, then there is nothing else to expect than the disintegration of society. They had the word of God, but it was not inside their hearts. If we muck up our relationship with God, we muck up our relationship with one another. No wonder that Habakkuk said that the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So in the end, Habakkuk's pain is inflicted by the wickedness of his own people, and he wants a way out. He wants to know if there is some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Well, at the very least, he wants some kind of answer to why this is happening. Something that he can cling to in his confusion to make sense of the complexity of it all. He can't keep on living with no answers. He seeks clarity in his confusion. The only place he can turn to is to talk to God and wait for a reply. And there are different types of questions, aren't there? You just need to watch the daily press conferences to see what is framed as a question is just really an accusation. But the danger in making an accusation framed as a question is thinking that we actually already know the answer. And in the confusing complexity of, complexities of life where we feel tempted to accuse God of being distant and indifferent, accusing God of being deaf and blind and dumb, God does listen, however. God does see. God does speak. The King of Glory breaks his silence. And in the case of Habakkuk, God reveals firstly that yes, 
He was always going to deal with injustice. And secondly, God reveals part of his plan of how he would deal with injustice. God's answer begins in verse 5. Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Whereas Habakkuk was accusing God of not looking, not listening, God now tells him to look. There is a poetic repetition of language going on here, a call and response. Look, says Habakkuk. Look, says God. Look, watch, be utterly amazed. You would not believe. Well, this sounds promising. Now, do you remember the, the quote from the, there's a children's movie called Meet the Robinsons. Do you remember, remember the, the quote, prepare to be amazed. Prepare to be amazed were the words of the dastardly villain as he presented the stolen time machine invention that he, to a board of directors in a, a way to try to make some money. Prepare to be amazed, he said. And unfortunately for him, because it was stolen, he didn't know where the on and off switch was. He didn't even know how to turn it on. But God is no dastardly villain. He doesn't need a time machine to know the future. And the reason that what God is about to say about the future will utterly amaze Habakkuk is he is not going to believe it because what he is about to be told does involve some real life dastardly villains in the meanest sense of the word. Look at verse 6. I'm raising up the Babylonians. In some translations, the Chaldeans. God is not sending a native godly prophet like Ezekiel or Jeremiah with an effective preaching ministry. But look at verse 6a again. Ruthless and impetuous people. God is raising up the Babylonians, a ruthless and impetuous people. If that doesn't give you enough of a picture to describe who they are, keep on reading. Who sweep across the whole earth to raise, to seize dwellings, not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honour. They even have their own version of technology. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. Look at their intentions, verse 9. They all come intent on violence. Intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. Look at their attitude in verse 10. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. Look at what they laugh at. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earth and ramps, and they capture them. 
To add insult to injury, the Babylonians are also idolatrous. Look at what they worship in verse 11. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. They don't sound exactly like the best next door neighbours. One could even suggest that there are some parallels to the, the modern day Taliban as they swept back into Afghanistan, advancing like the desert wind. Habakkuk cried out for help, but he didn't get the answer he anticipated. He demanded to know what God's solution was for Judah's corruption, all the evil in society, and God gave him a glimpse into the future. A glimpse that perhaps he didn't really want to know, after all. And the use of the descriptive language only heightened his amazement. At this point, maybe Habakkuk is, is thinking, oh, maybe knowing the future is not so good after all. And the international affairs that God was pointing to was the emerging nation of Babylon, historically, that began to take control over the waning power of Assyria, who came before them. Then after the Babylonians came King Cyrus and the Persians and the, and the Medes. And then the Greeks followed them and, and then the Roman Empire. And so it goes on. Kingdom rising, kingdom falling, kingdom rising, kingdom falling. And the map might not be very clear on the page there, but it shows that these kingdoms have come and gone. And the biggest uh, kingdom there, outlined in red, if you can see it clearly, is the, the Roman Empire. And although for Habakkuk, God's utterly amazing answer created more questions than it answered, it was during the reign of the Roman Empire, some 600 years later, that some of the words from the book of Habakkuk were quoted to explain their meaning in a more profound and more amazing way. In a speech by a man who traced his heritage back to the kingdom of Judah in which Habakkuk lived, the Apostle Paul said these words in Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. What was only a temporary means of judgment on injustice back in Habakkuk's day was in fact pointing forward to a more permanent way to deal with the problem of injustice where the problem of injustice stems from the reality of sin. And the law was not paralysed in the life of Jesus because as God himself in the flesh, fully God and fully human, the God-man fulfilled all the requirements of the law. Then through his death on the cross, he took the judgment we deserved for our sin and set us free from the judgment that our sin deserved. Rising to new life to assure us that death is not the end. And as Paul said, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What may have been an unexpected astonishment for Habakkuk 
how much more utterly amazing and unbelievable is that God would go to such lengths to send Jesus to die for our sin, to give us a hope that one day we will live with no confusion and chaos. It's unbelievable. It is utterly amazing. And this is a plan that is far greater than we could ever come up with. Unbelievable. Utterly amazing. Let's never lose sight of how amazing the good news of Jesus is. And so although God's initial answer doesn't resolve Habakkuk's complaint in a way that he was looking for, and we have to wait till next week to see what Habakkuk says next. God does, however, redirect Habakkuk's complaint to something bigger than Habakkuk himself. And just like in the book of Job, where God reminded Job through the whirlwind of speeches that there are things that are bigger than him going on in the divine order of creation. But he reminded Job, and as he does to Habakkuk, God was still committed to him. God has a purpose for Habakkuk. God has a purpose for us to grow in spiritual in the spiritual dimension and enlarge his view of God. To bring him to a place of trust, even when Habakkuk didn't have all the answers that he wanted. It's a journey that we ourselves are on as well. As God is enlarging our view of him to bring us to a stronger place of trust even though we won't always have the answers we want. Well, this is a pretty uh, heavy uh, topic and a pretty heavy uh, passage to look at. And in, in light of all this, as, uh, in the first stage of Habakkuk's journey of wrestling with God in, in prayer, let me draw out a few uh, implications uh, for today. I just want to pick up on four things. And there's a lot to say, but we'll hopefully cover uh, the full gamut of it over the next three weeks. The first thing I, I want to highlight is that it's okay to go ask God uncomfortable questions. What I love about the book of Habakkuk is that there's a real raw honesty about his questions. And, and that's what first struck me when I first read it over 20 years ago. I was just thinking, man, this guy's just being completely honest with God. He's just pouring his heart out. No, the Bible doesn't run away from problems of evil and, and God. We can ask, where are you, God? How long, God? God is big enough to not be afraid of hard questions. If God is big enough to hear his own son Jesus scream out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he dies on the cross, he is big enough to hear our screams of agony at the injustice of what is before us. We can be raw and honest with God. But at the same time, God can't be tamed to fit into our neat categories. Although we see one element of God's justice revealed on the, in the cross, there will always be other elements that we will not have neat answers for. How can a man who abuses a woman mercilessly for years come to know Christ and stand before God with his sins forgiven? 
there will always be a deep element of mystery in the outworking of God's forgiveness. And like a chronic pain, that mystery will continue to stab away at our frail hearts until the day we die. And I want to acknowledge that for some listening today, that pain is very real and very intense. And sometimes that God just doesn't fit neatly into our categories. But we can also take comfort that the forces of evil are never a threat to God's sovereignty. In the face of such evil and suffering, God has not lost control. God is more powerful than the nations and he is actively involved in history. There are no surprises to God, no accidents in God's world, just incidents whereby God is bringing about his purposes. That includes the worst trauma of evil in the history of the world, where God became a man and died on a cross, reminding us that God will act by any means necessary to bring his people back to repentance. And that is because he ultimately calls people to an eternal future with him where there will be no more confusion and chaos, no more death or crying or mourning or pain. He goes to such great lengths to save us from that. With that in mind and the fourth thing here, in, in the confusion and complexities of life, there is no more vital activity to engage in than conversation with the one who directs current events on both a personal and global scale. He doesn't promise to answer our questions to our satisfaction, but he listens. He listens and he has a plan that can be trusted. Take comfort in the God who listens and the God who has a plan. But be warned that those who don't trust in Jesus, that is not a future that is yours to have. For those who don't trust in Jesus, confusion and chaos will never end. God has given us a way out through trust in Jesus. If you are listening today, you don't know Christ. I implore you to take the good news of Jesus and trust in him. Let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge we live in a world of confusion, chaos, where there are so many things that don't make sense. We cry out to you, but as we do, we also acknowledge that despite what we might think otherwise, we know that as we cry out, we know that you listen. We thank you that you bring some clarity into our confusion with the good news of Jesus. Well, more than good news, amazing news. News that gives us hope that this confusion and chaos will one day end for those who trust in you. That forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed through Jesus. Help us to take hold of the clarity of that amazing news as we live in a world of confusion. 
We thank you that for those who trust in you, we have the hope that this confusion and chaos will one day end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.